Should we do the uh, intro music and everything? Let me get to the, is this? This looks good. <laughs> I like that we don't have an official intro. Yeah. You can't have an official intro. You got to just Uh-oh. get into it. Like Alex Jones. Get into it. Get into Folks, it. Folks, I'm here to riding. tell you, the other day I was out mowing my, my lawn and I saw my neighbors and they look so supple and so, this is the liberals doing this to me. They look so supple and so delicious. I sat there and I just licked my chops looking at my neighbors and the liberals did this to me. Hi, Mike. We put a little sweet baby rays on there. It'd be just fine. Well, sweet baby, sweet baby rays. That's my I'm actually more. I haven't, uh, I haven't really, I love barbecue sauce, but I haven't really done much with barbecue. I've been doing a lot of, a lot of dry rubs. Yeah. 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 I smoked some ribs the other day. Did a dry rub on there. And, I feel uh, like I always miss t- like people think you're supposed to put barbecue sauce on before. No, that's an amp. It's amateur mistake. No, right towards the end. Then you just burn the shit out of it. And then you've got bad overcooked sugar. That's right. Yeah. You got to put it on the end there. Yeah. I kind of got away. I feel like barbecue sauce just kind of covers up stuff. So I like to, I usually make one with barbecue, one without, and then I can just see how the meat tastes by itself. It's a good idea. Yeah. I actually like the, uh, I'm in on a, uh, South Carolina style with the mustard. I love that stuff, man. Yeah. It is really good, especially with smoked because it's a little bit sweet. Yep. And uh, it's a good counterpoint. I agree with so, you. No, it's a little bitterness. Sure. You like the vinegar sauce too? I don't know where that's from. I think that might be. Um, yeah. What is that? That's like Memphis, Tennessee or Tennessee, something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I like, yeah. It's not bad. I don't mind. Okay. I like vinegar, not, but like too much. I think then you like, you can only have like so much of that before. Yeah. That's why it's a, a dip it in the sauce there. You just, you ruin flavor town. Big time dipper over here. It's like a. <laughs> Switch to dip time. big time dipper <laughs> in general in life. Generally, yeah, both tobacco and I just sometimes I just put a big old dab of sweet baby rays under my lips. Sweet baby rays. I can't <laughs> hear that and not say that. And it is that the ad or something? I've never seen. No, it. no, it's, it's just not. <laughs> it's some sort of Pavlovian response from something I don't know where it came from. Do they have an ad? I've never seen. I've an never ad seen an ad. Sauce. Something that good, you don't need to advertise. No. <laughs> It's true. You know, that's what Sriracha did. They don't advertise. Yeah. If I fuck up a like, recipe, I just put either Sriracha. I just put Sriracha. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I put Sriracha on everything anyway. That's true. I, I'm a gentleman though. Mm-hmm. So when Grace cooks, which she cooks pretty much every meal during the week. Yeah. I always take three bites before I put Sriracha on. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It really is. This just is delicious. Great How, job. However. I love you. That <laughs> <laughs> is kind of insulting to the chef to add your own sauce. I mean, but everyone's got a different, right. like, right. You Should can have be? a very good meal and just like a little pizzazz, like a little, like, yeah. Whew. Let me customize this man. Jazz not, hands after that. Let me customize it. It's like people are offended by salt. I there's, you can never put too much salt on. I mean, you can, I guess there is a point where it's Yo, my grandmother, like I love salt too, but she, it's sometimes it's just like, like her pork chops are like salt licks. <laughs> Do you have a, uh, so I, I did one of those, like I did the ancestry test mm-hmm. a while ago before we were told we weren't supposed to do it. Yeah. I'm, I don't care. I'm like, China's got everything. Yep. Take my DNA. What do I care? <laughs> 
And you know, I forever people were like, eat dessert. Like here, have some, fro-. I'm like, I don't like frost. I hate frosting. Yeah. I hate it. Very Absolutely sweet. disgust me. Yep. And forever people are like, it's so weird. Yeah. And then I did the test and it turns out that like, you know, the genetic marker for sweetness or whatever, yeah. like it's basically the same, like the thing that turns off people for like broccoli, like yeah. it's almost the same thing with me and sweets. Sweets. Yeah. So I'll eat cookies yeah. that have like a saltiness, Yeah. but like straight up frosting is just disgusting. I don't really I like it. frosting. It's too sweet. Yeah. I, I make, usually when I make cakes, it's, I use a, either custard and whipped cream. I'm a big pie guy. Love pie. Love a good pie. Cream cheese frosting I can do. I like cream but, cheese frosting. And people call, like, I look like a psycho because I'll, we'll be at a birthday party and people will hand me this huge ass cake, like it's dig really in frosting, and yeah. I scrape all of the frosting off Don't and then I just it. eat the cake and they're like, this dude is nuts. Serial killer shit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the the store-bought stuff is just way, way too sweet. Man. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. And then they, for like a while, pies. yeah, for a while, the store-bought stuff was like this weird, super artificial texture was like really yeah, light and fluffy. Like, yeah. It's weird. Was, like crystalline. Yeah. It had a, a really awful mouth feel. I just could that. I definitely, Look at you. is this, is this New York times food review? Take my monocle out. Can't, no one can see that, but Mike was adjusting his monocle because this is the 1700s. Listen, I've never had anything handed me to, handed to me on a silver platter besides flutes of champagne and caviar. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. You know, I'm thinking people need to have the, we're missing a visual aspect of this. Maybe we should start streaming this on Twitch because we are just pounding coffee right now. People need to see. This is how, this is, yeah, this is the sauce. Last weekend I was like, I need to cut back on substances because I just drink alcohol, coffee and dip constantly. So it's like, I'm not joking. I gained 15 pounds. I'm going to cut back. I found myself one weekend last Saturday, holding a beer, a cup of coffee and had a dip. (laughs) At like 10 in the morning. You're like, like shit. This is a showdown. Who's going to win? <laughs> My body is like, yo, which dude, one of you sons of bitches is coming to the top? Can we take a break right now? We just woke up. Yeah. Your liver's just screaming. That's uh, so we you. have the same sort of realization. Not like quite to that degree. We had to take a pause mm. on um, like we don't, I don't drink during the week anymore. Yeah. I had to cut that. But that's a lot of calories too. I think uh, it's so much. I has- just, a regular beer has as many hot calories as a hot dog or some shit like that. So somewhere around there. That's a, yeah. You're using the classic beer to hot dog, uh, measurement. Yeah. So uh, if you have six beers a on a Tuesday, you just ate six hot six dogs. Six hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Which you would never do. <laughs> Which. <laughs> well, you just drink it. Yeah. I would drink six hot dogs. <laughs> that is like, without question. I would put a little bit of sweet baby rays. <laughs> My friend uh, in North Carolina had an idea for a hot dog salad that was uh, mm. purely in the whiteboard phase, but yeah. I think has some has some legs. There's a lot of R and D going on. Yes, America's top minds. With or without relish is the question. You know what I mean? Oh God, that sounds so disgusting. Chopped up. Is it a salad in the traditional sense with like greens and everything, or like salad like uh, no? I think the potato the salad. The relish, like exactly. Yeah, the relish would be the greens. Or the uh, un- chopped up onions or pickles or something. I don't yeah, know. Actually, I don't know. And with some hot dogs. I might there. be on board on this. <laughs> 
we'll have to we'll, we'll have to wait till the scientists are done. You just kind analysis. of wonder how that hasn't happened because that seems very American hot dogs. It does, yeah. I'm sure it has. I'm sure like there's Jello molds that have like hot dogs in them, hot dogs in it and stuff. It's disgusting. I'm gonna Google hot dog salad. By the way, I know now we're way up. Oh boy, way up. I want to Google hot dog salad. <laughs> Pretty good band name too. Yeah. A, a very specific genre of adult film as well, I think. Oh, yeah. Chicago-style hot dog salad. That's- oh, got ourselves a Chicago-style oh, yeah. salad. He was a pretty nice kid. <laughs> listen, you, you listen here. You come down to Chicago. We have two things we're famous for. Our hot dog salads and our deep dish pizzas. Our deep dish. The way Get you- yourself down to Shea Stadium. Or is that the Mets? I think I screwed that up. I don't know anything about sports. <laughs> Literally Wrigley Field is what I was thinking of. I do have some degree of sports knowledge, but it's embarrassing to say the least. I grew up outside of DC. So it was like having to edit all this out. Everyone's going to all my sports teams are like having a drunk dad for a father. (laughs) We'll we'll show up next season. Don't worry about it. We'll be there. Right. I think so. All right. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So I want to talk about two things today. The first is this really hot dog salad, hot dog salad. And tobacco, <laughs> my two passions in life. <laughs> oh, actually, I found this amazing YouTube channel. Yeah. This kid, speaking of Chicago accents. So I oh, thought geez. he was like 35 years old. He films this in his garage. He's wearing a leather jacket. He talks like he's from Chicago. Yeah. He's like smoker voice. So he's like, he's an old dude. And he reviews cigarettes. Oh, so he geez. gets the pack. He talks about the package, unpacks it, smokes it. And it's fascinating. And anyway, so I watched one video and he just does, he has hundreds of them. And I watched this one video where he introduces himself. He's like, anyway, I thought I'd talk about myself. I'm 19 years old. Oh, Jesus. I'm from Alabama. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> this is so confounding. <laughs> it's like a 35 year old. Holy Jesus. It's like a perfect anti-smoking ad. <laughs> and he already sounds like this. <laughs> Listen, I can't. This is these are uh, the reason I've been smoking so much is I ain't graduating with my high school class anymore because <laughs> of he looked, COVID. He had he looked like a, he had a greaser look. He looked like um, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, amazing. Yeah, that's that's so good. fantastic. I'm 19 years old from Alabama. Whatever it was. <laughs> You're like what? <laughs> None of this makes any sense. No, it was awesome. All right. All right. We're actually talking about. Okay. Uh, talking about two things. First, this book called The Mission of the Men and Me by a guy named Pete Blaber. And then I want to, he's got some like leadership lessons in there. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. Uh, and then I want to talk about this lady and kind of apply some of those lessons to this lady that died on the Appalachian Trail in uh, 2013. And before we get started, like the lady makes a lot of mistakes, I guess you could say. Uh, but I don't, it's easy to call something like that, like stupid or be dismissive, you know? Right. But I don't want to do that because it, because we've all, I think we all make these mistakes. But she basically got herself in a situation where she could no longer make the right decision. Yeah. Uh, and every decision she made was correct in isolation, but they added up to disaster. This includes sure. the search and rescue teams too. And so I don't want to be dismissive because we all get ourselves in these situations where uh, you, I, I don't know if there's a word for it, but I call it like the, like a whirlpool of defeat or like, um, like what you make one bad decision and that leads you to a decision tree in which all the other decisions are bad. And then it's bad. like the law of diminishing returns, right? The more you do, you just, you just can't get yourself out of it. And the, it, in my career field, it's like easy to do that. And so 
you could do that like three decisions deep, basically. And you're done. Yeah. Like I shouldn't have been here. I cut the wrong wire. Right. And now you're smoked. Kablooey. Yeah. So I, I want to, I'm always thinking about how like, so in land navigation, this concept of a backstop where it's like a terrain feature that if you hit it, you know, you've gone too far and you need to go back to where you started. So like a mental, these mental backstops where you get to this point and you're like, oh, I'm in that whirlpool of defeat. I need to get myself completely out of this decision tree and start with fresh eyes. So that's always like a, a, a thing that's on my mind. And um, she got herself in that whirlpool defeat. And I think this Pete Blaber guy has some good leadership rules that can help you establish those backstops. You know, I, I just bought the book. It's I have the audible. Oh, buying it. It's awesome, man. It's really good. So the guy is a, uh, he was a commander in Delta force and he was, uh, he was a, I might get this wrong because it's been a while since I read this section. So at the beginning of the book, he just starts these leadership lessons. And then the end of it, he talks about his career and some of the, um, you know, uses his career as to exemplify some of the, some of the lessons. So he, I think he was a ground force commander at operation Anaconda. Uh, oh geez. Right. Yeah. So that's a, which was one. another, uh, a good example of that whirlpool of defeat where you just can't, they got themselves in a situation where they couldn't make a right decision anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, to, you know, bad things happen. So let's start with his lessons, I guess. And they're all kind of, they're just aphorisms, you know what I mean? And which is awesome because he's not like, they're just common sense things where you hear him, you're like, doy. But I think that's the most important, like really the, the most useful type of lessons I think are the simplest. So he's got five, six of them and we'll just kind of go through them real quick and discuss them. So the first one is uh, don't get treated by a chihuahua, which is it's kind of a cute way of saying like, don't catastrophize, yeah. you know, which I think we all do when you see a situation like this is awful, insurmountable, insurmountable. Um, right. And you you get scared by things that are not actually uh, scary. Yeah. So, you know, the basic rule is don't catastrophize or like good vibes only, you know, don't allow yourself to get in this negative mindset where you're being chased by a bear. See podcast. That's right. Um, Resilience. Exactly right. Yeah. And it's really easy to do, especially if you don't have the full picture, you, mm-hmm. know? Yep. you see yourself getting piled on and then you don't look for avenues to address it. Cause you, I mean, there's tunnel vision, right? Like in a situation like uh, this guy probably faced pretty regularly if he was an infantry officer in Delta force was that every decision results in someone dying. You just hope it's the other guys. Right. Yeah. And he get the example he uses when he was at selection, he was, hiking through the woods and he hears this rustling in the trees and he's like, Oh, that's a bear. So he drops his ruck and ru- starts running. And, uh, it turns out it was just a, like a pig. So, so he almost, the wild boars are pretty dangerous too. They can be pretty dangerous. So he just took himself potentially lost his ruck in the woods because he thought there was a bear, but this is catastrophizing. Right. Like be level headed. The second one is, uh, imagine the unimaginable human, your uh, humor, your imagination. So a lot of times I think that's just a, uh, a rule against groupthink and getting stuck yeah. in a, like a, a set of solutions, right? Like a menu of solutions. You got to be able sure, to yeah. think outside the, I hate that cliche, but you know, think outside the box and imagine the full spectrum of outcomes, causes, and solutions to whatever problem you're in. Um, I think that, yeah, probably being open to like, uh, ideas that would seem otherwise irrational, maybe exactly. Yeah. Or maybe in like 
too crazy, you know, and the example he gives is he was in Bosnia trying to capture this war criminal and they knew the guy was going to drive along this road to say, they had to figure out how to stop his car so they could uh, take him out of the vehicle, a vehicle interdiction. And they went through all the options, like put his pretty lady on the side of the road, have a broken down car in the road, like all the normal, like honey, you know, and they knew the guy was paranoid and those are all pretty obvious solutions. So what they came up with was a literally a guy in a monkey, a gorilla suit that would be on the side of the road, like dancing. Right. <laughs> Which is what they ended up doing. And so they, anybody would be like, what the fuck? And stop. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when they hit the convoy. Oh, that's so great. Which is, I hope there's some ISR video somewhere of this <laughs> that will get declassified. <laughs> and uh, I think that's that's useful in a lot of career fields, especially if you're in a big organization. When you um, that doesn't encourage uh, open mindedness, you can get yourself in this really narrow set of solutions that might not solve the problem. And you might, that might take you back to getting treated by chihuahuas. Like there is no solution to this because yeah. imagining the full spectrum and not just, I got to remember to talk about it. Cause that there's, there's something I want to talk about later about general McChrystal. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And sort of his coming into like JSOC and yeah. facing a lot of the same stuff. Yep. But it also reminds me of an article I read this morning that was like this new marketer comes into uh, Burger King and comes up with this idea that is like, really, it just seems so stupid. Mm -hmm. But then in like hindsight, it was so brilliant. Yeah. And so basically they, this guy ran the Burger King social media account mm -hmm. and went around and started liking 10 year old tweets uh, of all of these like very famous people online, like influencers, I guess you'd call them. Yeah. And so all of a sudden people are like, why is First off, why is Burger King liking any of my stuff? And then 10 years old. And so like all these people, and then all of a sudden they start to connect each other. Like, wait, Burger King liked your 10 year old. What the hell is going on? This yeah. is so weird. Yeah. And then got just all of this free yeah. publicity yeah. for something so stupid. Right. Like it's so dumb. Yep. And then Burger King, like eventually like sent out some tweet, like, yay, we've got some new fries. Like they were like the, um, like churro fries or something right, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. That's a good example. Humor it's the exact your, same thing as this Delta force guys doing. Humoring your imagination kind of yeah. thinking of all, and not just solutions, but causes too of a problem, right? Like you might think you understand a situation, uh, but a lot of times shit just weird shit just happens. And if you're not right. thinking of weird causes to something, you might not be able to um, understand how you got yourself in that situation. Plus if like, isn't it boring to just, use the same solution every time. Mm -hmm. Like it just, especially like not in a military, I mean in the military, like using the same solution every time makes you predictable and vulnerable, but like right. in the real world, like it gets old and then people don't, they're not interested in you anymore. Absolutely. Gotta stay fresh. Cool. That's a good one. Yep. I like that one. Uh, the third one I think is my favorite is uh, when in doubt, develop the situation. So if you're missing, if you know, it's basically don't flounder in your own ignorance. So if you know you're missing information or something important, you have to, take positive steps to like fill that doubt in, which is pretty obvious, but I think it's a step that a lot of people um, sometimes don't take, right? They, they'd like rather... That's critical for survival situations, yes, right? Yes, exactly. The minute you're, you are defeated, that's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And if there's something you don't know, you need to take, you need to throw a pebble in the pond to watch and see how the ripples develop. Yeah. Pretty important one. Be Mike's memoir. That's Mike's poem, book of poetry. It's going to be called <laughs> "Throw a pebble, pebble in the Pond." Pebble in the Pond. Um, like, what would be an example, maybe? Or, um, 
We well, we'll talk about it. I was trying to think of his example. Oh, he uses example of uh, intelligence reports. So, uh, especially reliance on ISR where they fly over. Oh, I remember the scenario. So he, um, they're in Afghanistan and they have like their base set up and they're trying to develop this human human intelligence network, and they see on ISR one of their key um, informants, his brother, murders somebody. And they see this, right? So they're like, okay, this guy, we need to be careful this dude. Like he's going to start this kind of clan war and we need to cut this dude off. Um, I think is the scenario. So anyway, he, that was the intelligence, you know, recommendation. So instead of just taking that ISR video of this guy shooting a dude, he went and talked to everybody involved. And it turned out that the guy he had killed had been stealing like firewood or something, which yeah, in their is fine. Like you can, he's defending his property in their eyes. So that changed the whole perspective perspective on the uh, situation. So basically they were making huge guesses about the motivations of the individuals, yeah. which is something they didn't know. They didn't actually know. You don't know someone's heart until you go talk to them or their mind. So he developed a situation by going out and actually talking to these people, which, I mean, that's a great example. Cause I can think of, a, you know, a million situations in which I've guess the intentions of someone and use that my guesses about their intentions to act, which is not right. Cause I don't, you don't really know someone's intentions, right? It's always a prediction, which can be fallible. So you need to go out and actually, you know, gather that information. And I remember in, in, um, in college, that was like one of the philosophy tricks you'd have. Like a lot of times that people in a paper will take something for granted, they'll say, obviously X, right? And the, the trick is to say like, can I find s situations in which X is not true? And then you can develop a, a, a um, paper off of that. So the guy writing the paper has taken something for granted, uh, has no doubt about that thing, but it basically has failed to develop the situation and think through all the possibilities. Yeah. Cause there's no absolute truth like anywhere. Like right. that's just not a reality. Yeah. And if you're in a situation where now you're bogged down by that right. paradigm, you're kind of screwed. You're, you're right. You're taking things for granted. So you exactly right. Which I think is a, that's another good lesson in leadership is like, you know, don't ever think you're right. Cause yeah. like <laughs> you're <laughs> probably not, you know, and people have this again, I think we talked about this last time, like decisiveness is like such a bad trait when you're, be, when yeah. you're not taking time to like being decisive is not necessarily bad, but like decisive when you don't have any other tools I, at your disposal just gets you into trouble. That's a great too, because I think this when in doubt developed situation is about decisiveness to overcome ignorance rather than decisiveness. Like I have all the answers, let's act. Right. It's, you're being decisive in a way that allows you to further your situational awareness. Maybe kind of like the, the guys in Georgia, right? Yeah. That's another good example. They were being very decisive, but in a way that was, could only lead to a lethal outcome. Yeah. Right. They weren't there to figure out, is this guy the robber? They're like, this guy, right. the burglar. Let's go get him. Not like, let's figure out if this guy's the burglar. Right. They ignored a lot of logic. Right. They made a rapid decision based on bad information, lack of information. Mm -hmm. And of course it would be ignorant of us to ignore the fact that this is, you know, in an area that has historically had significant disparity right. in, in yep. ignorance and race yep. and all this stuff. And so there are pieces of shit, mm -hmm. but pieces of shit that probably could have been walking free right now yep. had they just 
called the cops or done something that's a more logical person would have made. Exactly. So weighed yeah. their options. Should have been decisive in a way they gave them more options rather than less options because they only had essentially gave themselves only one option when they got there. Well, hopefully they rot in jail. But anyways. Yeah. <clears throat> uh so the next one is uh, always listen to the guy on the ground. So like, you know, firsthand knowledge is, is irreplaceable. You need to trust the person that's actually interacting with the terrain and with, with the problem, generally speaking. Um, that one's pretty obvious. It's easy to sit around and think, you know, all the answers or, yeah, I think, especially in the leadership position, as you move up the, right. The rungs of an organization, you end up getting this 30,000 foot view. Uh, and you think you understand the reality on the ground, uh, but you might not, you know, so you need to pay attention to the dude that's actually turning the wrench or walking the terrain or solving the problem. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, there's agility there too. Like yeah. if you're able to share that information in a rapid way, mm-hmm. which is again, we'll get to Stanley McChrystal, but like yeah. that was one of the big lessons he realized when he stepped into his JSOC role was absolutely, you know, you're, we're, we're not, actually using good information. Yeah. And that goes back to the decisiveness thing that there's a tendency when you're in a position of power to exercise that power and like, Oh, people are looking to me for a solution, but maybe they're not, maybe they're just looking for resources to execute the solution they already have in mind. Right. Um, so oh, yeah. 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 Like manipulating like right. the situation by only providing information that's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. To their choice. Yeah. And, uh, so that actually leads us right in the fifth one, which is, um, so the guy on the ground is not off the hook. I, he's not always right. He's not always communicating correctly. So they don't have like the 30,000 foot level. Exactly. So the concept is, uh, on the aphorism, it is not reality until it's shared. So the person on the ground needs to communicate effectively, right? Not just communicate, but communicate effectively. Like you're saying, not just give the information that you think is relevant. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you, that information needs to be shared, um, no matter what. Right. So this happens a lot in writing reports where people will leave out details that they think are irrelevant, but they might be irrelevant to you. But some guy a year from now or somebody with another piece of information might be like, Oh, I can connect the, you know, connect the dots, uh, in a way that you cannot. So if you're not sharing information, even information that you think is irrelevant can be a significant problem for the guy that's actually on the ground. Yeah. My very, like this is sort of how geeky my tech school was, but like that was one of the main focus points of the training Yeah, was like, do not, you don't use opinion in your reports. You don't flavor the report with right. like what you, you know, think is occurring. Right. It's literally get the facts and just send those up the chain. Exactly. And that's it. And then you know, in aggregate, all of a sudden you start to paint a picture exactly, because yeah. you've got all this information. And if it's an irrelevant detail, cool. Like you can just shed it. Like it's yeah. gone. Yes. That's, that's fine. You know, what is that? 10 sec, 10 extra seconds to read that section. Exactly. Um, but that 10 extra seconds could make a huge difference. Exactly. And yeah. it can get really annoying. Like I've had reports where like, you know, I wrote, uh, what the hell it was. It was something, uh, jet a versus JP eight, mm-hmm. right. Two different types of fuel. Right. And it's like, what the hell? It, like, who cares? Yeah. It was, it was jet fuel. Right. And like, well, actually JP eight's got more, uh, coolant in it or something. So there's some like environmental reason right. that you need to know this. And yeah. Yeah. Detail, you might <laughs> I think that's know. good in, in general, like again, as sort of just good advice is 
you know, and it's so hard. Like it really is hard. Cause yeah. especially if you're using, like if that report is going to have some impact on your career, potentially mm-hmm. like you're onto something or you want to paint yourself in a light that is positive and then hide when you screw up, but <laughs> that screw up. I mean this, uh, I just wrote a really like a 15 page paper on after action reports mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that those reports are like, they just, it doesn't like the army, it works pretty well, right? Like they invented the report essentially. I mean, they didn't like Napoleon's no. so, yes, after right. action reports and stuff, but we're doing it. army formalized it in like the seventies, the whole process. Yeah. And one of the biggest faults is like people don't put in enough information that like, you know, they put in things that didn't work, but not necessarily like why they right. didn't work yeah. or like what it was that actually caused it not to work. And they didn't put in things that did work either. Like it's really focused on, right. on failures. Right. And the point of the after action is that like, you know, some future person in that role could go through an after action and go, Oh, look at this. Like I'm writing my plans right now. Yeah. And I'm trying to find, you know, and having it like a cert, like it's, you know, accessibility, like you want a lot of these reports end up, I mean, that's one thing uh, it's talked about a lot in the military is like compartmentalization of information for, sure. yeah, for very various reasons. Yeah. Um, bad classification, all this other stuff. But like you want the, re- the beauty of that report is the fact that like people can learn from those lessons, both positively and right. negatively right. to, you know, hopefully have a better outcome in the future. Yep. And if you don't share that information, you know, now someone else has to make that mistake. Yeah. And that goes back to imagine the unimaginable. If you're the one reading the reports, yeah. It's easy to be dismissive of information because you can't, it doesn't fit inside your, your preconceived notion of, of what's happening. Uh, and you're like, well, that's, that is irrelevant. And you got to ask yourself, is that irrelevant? Is this an important detail? Uh, that's hard to do too, to kind of get yourself out of your, your framework that you've established for yourself. That's right. why I love the warrior monk, Mattis. Yeah. Mad dog. Mm-hmm. He was a leaders of readers. Mm-hmm. You got to like learn from the past and, and yeah. not have an ego. I was reading about, this takes me back to, uh, I was reading about um, this awesome book on the history of booby traps, which I thought was going to be awful, but ended up being fantastic. And when the Germans were leaving both in World War One and World War Two, they got, you know, as they were losing and they were losing terrain, they would booby trap the terrain as they left. And the allied powers had no like render safe capability, you know? And so what they ended up developing is a situation not that far off from what we have today, which is they had like EOD teams that were using kind of like a firehouse model where they would um, kind of sit on the fob and they would get reports back in and they drive out, take care of it, come back. And that's not good for the guys on the front line because they're moving forward very rapidly and need right. quick response. So they developed these things called assault pioneers, which were, um, combat engineers with extra infantry, infantry training. And then they also went to these render safe schools. So they knew how to defuse landmines and booby traps and they would be embedded directly with the frontline troops, which is almost exactly how EOD uh, operates today. You have some, some teams that are sometimes called heavy teams that sit on the fob with a truck and tons right. of equipment. Right. And you have other guys that are dismounted with the four line. There was no four line of troops, but on patrol, Right. Limited, <clears throat> less capabilities, but much more flexible. So it's kind of but like, cool. and a lot of times like they can provide like that, that little piece of information, like, Oh yeah, don't worry about that. Like, exactly. Go around it. Right. Exactly. Right. So it's kind of cool that, you know, nothing is new in the world either, you know, yeah. especially when you think about world war two, no one really thinks about IDs, but they were essentially IDs. And it was something like 
10 or 12% of all casualties were caused by landmines, booby traps, something like that. That's like drones. Like everyone thinks drones is like this modern, you nope. know, the earliest drones were used in like World War II. There, well, so in World War One, there was this thing called a Kettering bug. Oh yeah. Which was a, a, a plane that they would pack full of TNT. Yeah. And they had this thing that would count the number of revolutions of the engine. And they knew if you did a thousand revolutions, you'd fly a hundred yeah, meters or whatever. Distance or every, yeah. So it would cut off at a certain number of revolutions and then crash on the ground. So it's basically a guided missile. I mean, V ones are drone. like much less, you know, the, the rockets that were used, uh, you know, not very accurate, but I mean, essentially that was, yeah. And there were, same thing. That's there crazy. were guided bombs in world war two that they drop off of, um, radio control guided bombs that the allies had. Uh, that they would use. And that's actually a great example of imagine the unimaginable. So back then, take a little aside here, talk about the history yeah. of guided bombs. So the one the, in World War II, they were regular bombs, but they would put this um, uh, system on the back with ailerons that you could control, radio control, right? And they would drop it off an aircraft. But the problem is, is, is the bomb drops, it spins. So like left, if it's upside down, left is now right. You know what I mean? Right. So right. they had to keep it stable in flight as it fell. So they put these big gyroscopes on the back of it to keep the thing stable as it fell. And you'd have to fly and watch the bomb and kind of steer it in and hit the target. There's a little bit of parallax issue there. So you could only hit long, skinny targets. Sure. Bridges, rail lines, that kind of stuff, roads. Um, but the guys that invented the um, the paveway bombs, the laser guided bombs, kind of reimagined the entire situation because every... Yeah guided bomb up to that point had this very complex system of gyroscopes on the back um, and was radio controlled. And they got rid of those gyroscopes entire, entirely, just put a little laser sensor on the front and you showed a laser at it. And it would um, basically just try and keep that laser in the center of its optic. Right. As it went. So if like the lasers up, it goes, it's yeah, yeah it goes the opposite it direction. Down. Right. Yeah. Um, this is not going to work. Cause there's no goddamn gyroscopes. You need a gyroscope. You know what I mean? It was completely revolutionary yeah. and no one could imagine that working, especially since it looked like it was literally like a shuttlecock on the front of a bomb. They're like, this is not what a guided bomb looks like. Which is great. Cause I mean, it's essentially, uh, it's an attachment, right? They replace the, just the, the debt detonator part of the bomb. That's, I that's, guess. that's exactly right. And that's the other advantage is you can take a regular old bomb as these gyroscopes got bigger, they weren't yeah. fitting in bomb bays. They couldn't be underneath the aircraft. They needed special uh, ways of interacting with the bomb between the aircraft and the bomb. And this was just taken, you could do it to any bomb in the inventory. You didn't need to have a tailor made bomb. Um, so it was pretty revolutionary and they really were able to, you know, imagine the unimaginable kind of get outside the Whatever. I'm going to go slip back into cliches. Think yeah, yeah. The that's box. good stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. All right. So that's uh, number five. The sixth one is like the overarching principle about how to prioritize needs. Cause in any situation you have like a thousand different priorities, a thousand different things you're trying to solve and how do you like rank order them? And he uses, it's the title of the book. So the mission, the men and me. So if you're thinking about what is my priority, the first mission, the first priority should be the mission. Anything that supports the mission should be your first priority. Then anything that supports your dudes underneath of you will be your second priority. And then you're the last priority. So, and I think we all get in this situation. I know I've been in this situation where I had a solution to a problem. I really liked it, but my ego was tied up into it. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, this is going to make me look great. But it wasn't necessarily going to further the mission. And it, it put an extra burden on my dudes underneath of me to like get this wazoo concept executed. Yeah. And I was not prioritizing things correctly. So 
that's I think the perfect backstop when you're thinking about a solution. Like, is this going to work? You think, is this, well, is it going to work for the mission or is it going to work for me? You know, and not, and kind of be a little bit selfless in your prioritizing, which is not always easy to do. Well, no, I mean, that's like altruism, right? Like if you're doing something that is supposed to be, I mean, like you just can't, it's, it's so hard to pull your ego out of it. Yeah. You know, even if you aren't necessarily trying to better yourself, I think you're always afraid you're going to do something that is going to hurt your career yourself. And that, you know, that's like more subtle and it's probably more challenging to control because like, that's almost like a survival instinct. Right. Right. So it's very fundamental and putting yourself, I mean, especially in situations where like people are going to die, it gets even more complicated. Yep. Yep. So you always got to put the the solution and the mission first, which I think is uh, accurate. And then you men, your, your dudes on you ahead of you as well, of course. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenging parts of that too, is like, as we've sort of shifted our style of war, that's become more complicated, right? Because like, you know, it was previous generation. I mean, like for literally centuries, you had essentially one person at the top who's making the decisions and it was super linear and it really was like, just go on. And like, now you've got leaders who have learned from those lessons as well as just like, I think one of the great things is that the military's kind of gone outside of the military to learn things as well. Cause like, you know, there's lessons to be learned in the private sector and nonprofits and everything else. And like now, you know, like being sort of challenged in some ways, like, you know, like there's the ability to, you know, like, as a, you know, a, a Colonel can, could challenge a general now and be like, yeah. you know, is this a great idea? Like, I think yeah. maybe this isn't a good solution. Right. And that's no longer like, screw that guy. Like yeah. take, you know, he's take his, his clip, his wings. He's done. Yeah. Like I'm done. I'm not sitting here. Um, but then like, how do you sort of breed that across the board without sort of putting, you know, either a taking too long to make decisions right. Or, or breeding insubordination. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to execute. Even if you think it's a bad idea, you just, at some point discussion is over, you just got to do it. And I think a lot of people yep. have a tough time with that too. I agree. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So those are the basic six lessons, obviously, you know, common sense, nothing fancy, but I think they're all super useful. Nice backstops for thought process. So we'll get into, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because the, ge- all right. So just yeah, general McChrystal's uh, please, yeah. approach is the exact same. Yeah. I mean, so his, his whole point was basically like, uh, how do you, you know, take a system where, how do you basically build the system so that you are able to, uh, take advantage of all those literally like almost everything you just stated. Um, so when he came into, uh, run a command, you know, he, we had been, when we first got into Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the structure of command and control was essentially as it had been for any other, you know, overland war, you know, it's, it's designed in very linear fashion. And what he was sort of really frustrated with was a, we were not really, we're not really winning, right? Like these completely decentralized, you know, ill-equipped, um, and, you know, uh, as we perceive them, you know, I mean, like there's the derogatory that like, they're a bunch of goat herders. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, but they're, they're kicking our ass right now. So what is it that they're doing that we can't, like, we can, we were killing all their leaders and like the next it's like, has no effect. Right. And so he was looking at it and he was seeing all of this, like they're completely decentralized. And so he was trying to figure out like, well, how do we, like, why are we not able to do this? Cause it works perfect in a 
dismounted, you know, nonlinear front, right. Where you've got like individual groups all over the place sort of operating independently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't have like these large, you know, mechanical waves of tanks or whatever. And so he started to look at, okay, first he wanted to break down just that structure because it took so long to get information back and forth. Right. And then he started to recognize that like, you know what we, what we should do is essentially build, I mean, he calls it team of teams, right? right? Like, so that's, that's the, his book. And he's made quite a career afterwards in teaching this to corporations and stuff. But, um, by the way, I love that book. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, I still need to books. read it. Yeah. Um, but his idea was essentially like, you've got a network of networks. That's what we're like. That's the strength. That's why like the Taliban and, you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda do so well is like they are decentralized. So you can't, you can't, you know, in the, in the, if like someone at the start were able to take out like our combatant commander, that would destabilize an entire combatant command. Right. Um, it would take us a long time to sort of like come to terms with that. Whereas like they were nodes, like it was individual nodes. So like you took out one node, the network itself was still robust. Yeah. And so he tried to essentially mirror that. And that's, uh, you know, one of the, um, biggest concepts of, um, Oh God, what is a uh, coin, right? Like counterinsurgency stuff is you need to be agile and move around and like let people make decisions on their own. And then like as a network support that. And then, so he, he essentially broke down lines of communication. Like one of the things he did right off the bat was, uh, set up this conference call between everyone under his command. Right. You know, he was like, I want, I want everyone on this call. Like, why are we like, why am I, you know, someone's reporting from the ground to their boss, to their boss, right. to their boss. Like it just slowly goes up. And by the time that they get the information at the top, like you said, all the ego and everything and, mm -hmm. and like people had already made decisions by the time it got to him. So he wasn't really making decisions based on information. Right. He was like carrying out. Picking from a very small a menu of options. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was like, and then he was looking at operators who were going out and actually like, so intelligence would give them what's, like, you know, the, here's your target. And then the operators would go out, you know, and the intelligence took forever to get there. So by the time they got to the the target, it was too late. The person was either gone or mm -hmm. it had been cleaned out. And then they would get there, they would find intelligence and they would bring it back and they, it wouldn't get shared back with the intelligence folks. Right. And so he basically took them and was like, just sit in the same room. Yeah. Like intelligence, talk to the operators, right. operators, when you get back, give them everything you have right. and, and do that between branches, which was even more challenging, like yeah, yeah. the silos that existed just, you know, even in a joint operation. So yeah. yeah. And then basically just continue to break that down. And so like everyone started sharing information and, you know, he was super successful in that. And, you know, they made, uh, you can definitely see the difference in his command, yeah. um, and how impactful that was. And I think we'd still operate largely under mm -hmm. that yeah. style of, as, or at least in the special operations world. That's my understanding. Uh, unfortunately, you know, and he ate crow, uh, because he, you know, said some things, uh, about president Obama that ended up costing him his command. Yep. Right. Yep. I, yes, he did for the Rolling Stone article. Yeah. And, um, but he also like, he took it and was like, yep, I screwed up and didn't make a big scene. You know, didn't even like, if you read his book, like, you know, there's, there's not a, like, screw you, man. Like I should have been a leader forever. Right. I'm the number one general. It was, you know, I think just sort of recognizing that mistake and learning from it, which is another really challenging leadership aspect is, you know, it's okay to make mistakes, but if you continue to make them, you don't learn from them. Right. That's a problem. Yep. And when it's a really big mistake, you need to own that really big mistake because yep. if everyone below you sees you make that mistake and you get away with it, then it's sort of 
that's the slippery slope of yeah undermines your credibility. You know, bad leadership. And yeah. so he could have, he probably could, I mean, he was, he was a general. I'm sure if he wanted to, he could have made a big deal and probably continued on a, but yep. you know, he owned it, which is, yep. which is a hard lesson. Well, I think that that's he's doing all right. Yeah. He's, I'm sure he's doing fine. <laughs> that style of organization too, puts a huge burden on the guy on the ground, which is like a burden that not everybody takes seriously all the time. You know, yeah. like if you're going to be in a position to make big decisions, like be good at making big decisions. Don't you, you know, and a lot of times people get in those situations, they don't exactly get their way and then they'll undermine the credibility of the institution entirely. Yeah. You know, like people complaining about the chain of command above them to people below them is a good example of like just poisoning the institution. Cause now if you don't trust your boss, um, you're not going to be particularly effective at your job. You know, if you think everyone it's is easy to do, like if you've got a bad easy. boss, like a particularly like, you know, but then again, there's ways to address that. Right. Yeah. And I think probably way the military now is yeah, you got to do it in a way that doesn't undermine the credibility yes. of the entirely. And yeah, and, I mean, one of his, yeah, go ahead. Oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to execute. Even if it's a bad plan. Yeah. Like you're still like, who am I? Like, I'm just a cog, you know what I mean? Like sometimes yep. you got to be a cog. But you're given, I mean, that's the beauty of like, you're given enough rope to hang yourself. Yeah. So like you can make, like you have the ability to say, this is not a lawful order, right. Yep. And protect people. And, and you do have the ability to, you know, as a leader to make a, an audible call and mm -hmm. change some things and you got to own that. Yep. But you know, again, you're on the ground. Like that's, I think that's what, what his, another one of his big, big takes was like, don't have such a rigid structure that the person on the ground actually can't have the freedom. Like, you know, give someone obviously needs to be accountable and to make sure that the mission's being carried out. But at the same time, like I, you know, this is something I think that's really interesting happening is like, we're sort of going back to this older style, like in, in early war, obviously you don't have the communications. We got really used to having satellite communications yeah, and like instant access yeah. to everyone. And so you could have a general sitting in a room, you know, commanding, uh, the boots on the ground people mm -hmm. at the, you know, the front carrying out the mission, but that's not really great leadership. Right. No. Cause you're almost like playing a video game right. and it becomes sort of expendable and, um, and you trust that it's always going to be there. And then all of a sudden you start losing it. Now you've got a, you know, team that's like, well, what do we do now? Right. Like if there's no general telling us what to do, how do we carry this out? Right. And so, you know, again, the sort of team of teams approach that he took was like that next chain of command does have the authority to like carry missions out. If it, if it's going to make sense right. and like alter things as it makes sense, yep. you know, obviously again, with the ultimate goal to carry out the, the totality of the mission, but yep. Um, you do need to have a bit of autonomy and you need to have room to make those mistakes. But like you said, those are big mistakes you make, right? Like right. you either you're swinging for the fences every single time because the stakes are just too high. Yeah. Cool. All right, yep. Let's talk about the, the, all right. Yeah. So this, and we'll use this lady as an example of, uh, I think, I think it will illustrate some of the principles. Um, her name was, uh, Jerry Largay and she was, um, uh, 66 years old at the time of her death. And she spent basically her whole life outdoors, hiking long trails, hiking in the woods, you know, not and out, not a survivalist, but, uh, you know, a successful trail hiker. Pretty proficient. Proficient outdoors. trail hiker. Yeah. And she'd always dreamed of um, hiking the Appalachian Trail. So she the plan, it's uh, I think it's like twenty one hundred miles, pretty long, you know, twenty two hundred miles, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and one of the so you can either start people generally start in Georgia and go all the way up to Maine uh, or you can break it in pieces. 
Harper's Ferry is like kind of the midway point in West Virginia. Yep. So some people hike West Virginia to Maine and then drive down to Georgia and hike Georgia to Harper's Ferry. And that allows you to avoid the cold parts because you have to start in like March in Georgia which yeah. in the mountains. Very, very cold. So it allows you to skip the shitty weather. Makes it a little more fun. So that's what she was going to do. So she started in Harper's Ferry, hiked about a thousand miles and was 200 miles from Mount um, Katahdin, which is the you know, the end point of the Appalachian trail. Uh, and she was using, there's two different ways of doing it. You can do a supported or unsupported hike and right. unsupported is when you carry everything you need and generally mail stuff ahead to these, um, you know, cabins and, cabins stuff, and stuff. Yeah. Pick it up as you go. Or you can do a supported where you have a car that's driving along the roads along it and you stop at the car every so often and hang out there and get, get your supplies that way. So she was doing supported with her husband, Greg, uh, Greg, or sorry, George. And she was hiking with one of her friends named Lee. And they were just kind of, you know, bounding up the trail. And at some point, uh, about 200 miles from the finish, Lee had to leave the trail. So Jerry was hiking by herself. And in July of 2013, she came to a, a lean to called Poplar Ridge lean to was going to hike about a couple days of so 40, 50 miles, something like that, and meet her husband, George, up at this um, trail stop, a parking lot on the trail. Uh, so she left the, um, the lean to, uh, walked, I don't know, like 20, 30 miles and then had to, had to pee, use the restroom, uh, take a leak. So she stepped off the trail and then could not find her way back to the trail. So she just stepped off, uh, a couple hundred feet and then couldn't get her way back. And the trail is crazy easy to do. Like, yeah, especially in that part. Cause I've, I've gotten lost many times doing something very similar. Yeah. Especially in that region. Cause it's, um, Maine, which the, you know, really, um, steep terrain Thick, and then the other woods, right. And then it was used as a logging area and they hadn't been taken out. So they cut down stuff they're not going to use. And usually they take that out to have a clear. So it's easier to get to the stuff that they will take out, yep. but they, they didn't. So it was extremely overgrown and uh, she wasn't able to find herself back on the trail. So she, uh, has a cell phone, no reception whatsoever. So she sends a text message, sees that it's not received. So she goes to try and find higher ground uh, to get a cell phone reception. And that leads her deeper into the woods away from the trail. So her husband is sitting at the trailhead and it rains that night. She doesn't show up. He's like, well, she probably it's raining. So she's probably going to take a little extra time and waits 24 hours uh, before he contacts the authorities. And as soon as he contacts the authorities, they start basically they start a, a search almost immediately. And the only evidence they have of her location, her last known site was this lady who took a picture of her at the Poplar Ridge lean to. Yeah. And, um, they've got that picture, I think three days after she goes missing. So they know where she started, yeah. but they don't know where she's at between her start point and her finish point. Uh, and they get a, a couple of false leads. They get a cell phone message, um, where she said incorrect information and said she was at a different lean to. So they thought she was mm -hmm. much farther along the trail. And then they had this eyewitness account that they saw an older lady with um, blonde hair and glasses near that lean to as well. So they were focusing their search around that specific lean to. Uh, and anyway, so she's out there, she finds a little grove of, I think hemlock trees that she sets her tent up underneath of and puts up some signals and stuff, which is what you're mm -hmm. supposed to do. Uh, yeah. I remember in elementary school, they taught us if you get lost, like to stay in one spot. Yeah. Hug a tree. Uh, hug a tree. Yeah. So she's doing that. 
Uh, she puts up some signals and she lives for, she kept a journal the whole time. She lives for 19 days. She had four days worth of three days worth of food, runs out of food after nine days. And then, you know, starves and dies of exposure on day 19. And they don't find her body until October of 2015. So when uh, did the actual, cause I remember this, like living in new England, like this was, sure like was big, big news. Story, yeah. And, um, was it like 2000? 10 or so? July, July, 2013 is when she went went missing. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the overarching narrative, I guess. And I think, you know, obviously it's easy to be like, and they found her body about less than two miles from the trailhead. Yeah. And it was like a mile or something from this logging road that ran by there. Um, so miles is a long way. It can be a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially through thick. Yep. But the thing, so if you think about it, like from a dismissive point of view, yeah, the trail runs north south. Yeah. If you're west of the trail, if you walk east, you have to hit the trail. Right. There's no way to miss it. Right. So if you can figure right. out, she had a compass and a map, um, and that she could see the sun. Obviously, if you know which side of the trail you're on, like you can get back to the trail. Right. Um, especially in that situation on the Appalachian trail, you're never that far from civilization. So she lived for 19 days with nothing, with three days of food. You just drop all your kit and just walk East, hit the trail. You're going to hit a road or something else. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to be dismissive. And I think where she, her mistake there, and she was doing all the right things in isolation, right? Hug a tree, but she would, she had doubts. She didn't know where she was, but she didn't do anything to develop the situation. You know, she wasn't like, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know. I'm west of the trail, east of the trail. I needed to do something to gather some information, um, you know, which is a mistake. I think she probably got stuck in the idea that someone else would come rescue her. Yeah. Which was not true in this case, because the rescue team themselves had had bad information. They were listening to the guys on the ground that information had to be wrong and they weren't able to get themselves out of that situation and imagine a situation in which that information was incorrect, even though they had some significant doubts about it because the eyewitness accounts for the lady that they saw near that trail farther North, they're like, she was not talkative, very quiet, kept herself, which was completely opposite from the personality of, of Jerry who yeah. friends with everybody. So they right. had this doubt, but they weren't able to like be like, is this information wrong? Let's right. You know, um, and then I think she probably treated by a Chihuahua situation too. I imagine you never really, I, there was this fantastic map that someone made that was like, what's the farthest distance from a McDonald's in the United States. And it was only like 250 miles or something like that. Yeah. The, the farthest you could be from McDonald's possibly. So in the U S you're never that far from civilization. If you just pick a cardinal direction and walk in 19 days, you'll find something. Right. You know what I mean, and she was right. not able to, Maybe. I mean, in 19 days, you're like, I don't know. What's, what was the hike speed she was, she was planning on she making? Was, she uh, was pretty slow. I'd imagine and I trained probably a mile an hour, I would guess. So, I mean, you could still, I mean, she could have been nearly 200 miles. In the wrong direction. Really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But eventually like, and I mean like 200 miles off of the Appalachian trail in any direction. I mean, unless you're, you're I mean, there is the reality, like you could just circle, which does happen. Does that for sure. Especially you do, in very uh, thick terrain really disorienting, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, again, if you know which direction you need to head in, um, and you have a little bit of land nav knowledge, she, backstop. she did. Yeah. Use a backstop and so on. Uh, and not to be critical of her, but just to illustrate sure. these as like examples of how you can skip over these lessons and really fuck yourself. 
Um, and be really good at what you're doing and still make still be really good at what you're doing. Life. Exactly right. Because you don't have those mental backstops. Yeah. Um, and then the reality, not, it's not reality until it's shared is another good example with the, I guess with the text messages, you know, she had the information, she just wasn't able to, to get it out. And that's yeah. not her fault, lack of technology right. there. Uh, and maybe an over-reliance on technology too. You know, she was like, if I get lost, I got my cell phone. Uh, your cell phones are not always, not always going to work. Yeah. Signal, whistle, yep. uh, radios. Exactly. Other options. Yep. So that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a good, uh, I, the, there's also sort of the parallels of like the, when you're, you know, um, when you're focused on one problem, you mm-hmm. lose sight of all of the problems. Yep. And that's where like, again, like you, she had people that sort of should have had that 30,000 foot level and maybe, you know, again, having some plan in place before that occurred. Like, yeah. what is the dead? Like, if you don't see me in how long, like, what does that mean? And yeah, I think just like she, my guess is she probably like, I, I mean, I felt that twinge of panic when you step off trail and all of a sudden you look back and you're like, Ooh. Oh shit. That's a good illustration too, of like a seemingly safe environment. The Appalachian yeah. trail, like you said, runs doing South. You get off to the East, you walk West, you have to hit it. Uh, it's surrounded, you know, there's a lot of, um, civilization around it. It should have been a safe situation. She was competent outdoorsman, but you can still get yourself in a situation where, you know, even a seemingly safe situation, you can end up yeah. getting in serious trouble. Yeah. The lesson here is, uh, you're going to die. Don't go outside. <laughs> Don't go outside. Stay inside. Yeah. You can't get hurt in your house. Yes. This is safety. But yeah. I think yeah it is a, it's, it's a good, that's a great, I think it's a perfect illustration of all the stuff. And, and again, it also sort of like, you know, when you're looking at survival, I, I, one thing I've, I've realized recently is like all these selfish survivalists, like you can't like being by yourself is really, Mm -hmm. really, really hard. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's so many people who like pride themselves in like making independent decisions, but, uh, it just, you get so, cause you only have your own like view you, right. you can only see what you see. Right. And that's, that's almost like another lesson in this, not this, like, again, not to disparage her. Like no, 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 I, no. I would probably die in like 10 minutes yeah. on the Appalachian trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I hike very defined trails, you know, <laughs> yeah. and now having like little kids, like we're not, we're not bouldering up, right. you know, sketchy terrain or anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you can't, yeah, you can't, uh, be, yeah, you there's independence is not really a, an option all the time because you can't, you just go, you know, you can't have all the information all the time. We all have yeah. our own personal biases that we succumb to. Uh, we get talk ourselves into, into tunnel vision, which I think is to some degree what she might've done. You know, the idea is that someone will come find me. That's genuinely true in this situation. It was not true, but she couldn't potentially, I don't know her heart, you know what I mean? But it's yeah. possible she couldn't talk herself out of that. Like no, no one is coming to find me. What do I do now? There was no, there was no way of getting yourself out of a situation in which nobody could find you. And, uh, maybe it, when you were Again, reading it, so imagining the unimaginable was failed to happen too. Like, oh, yeah. what if I just go missing? Yeah. That wasn't considered. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a very, like, that's a discussion. Like, I mean, like you think you have to, you have to consider that in any situation, like, you know, your commute to work. Like if you don't show up to work, like, are people going to notice? And like, you know, like seriously though, like I mean, I've thought about that too. Like, you know, driving, uh, 
at night in Vermont, there may not be any other cars. I'm like, you know, communicate when you should be at places and have that plan, you know, especially in the winter, because you could slide off the road in a snowstorm and you know, that's happened. I used to hate getting called to car accidents during snowstorms and then not finding it. Yeah. You know, yeah. 99.999% of the time someone slid off, got back on and was fine or it just didn't happen. You know, they saw a puff of snow and thought a car crashed, Right. but like leaving and you're like, what if there's like some person who's in like an upside down car right now, freezing to death because we just couldn't find it. Yep. So that, you know, a little bit of communication in that sense. And it sort of feels like in the way you described it, and I don't know if this is actually how it was chronologically, but like she approached solutions individually instead of like collectively. Great way to put it. Yeah. So like, um, you know, she was like, okay, I need to make a text message or I'm going to go up in this hill versus like, oh, why don't I find a high point West so that I'm headed back towards the trail right. as well as trying to find a high ground. And then that way I've now got two solutions I may fall into instead Great of point, yeah. uh, one and, um, you know, trying to take collect collective and it, she had it three days of food. She could have just stopped and be like, I'm going to spend today getting creative on how I'm going to save yeah, my life. Sit down and I've got think enough about time. Yeah. yeah. That was the thing. She walked farther from the trail as she tried to find high ground. And, and you know, as you go up the hill, now you go to down the goddamn thing. Right. Yeah. It makes it much harder. And panic, you know, panic obviously causes all sorts of issues, but sure. cool. All right. Well, we can leave it at that. I think we're going to do probably another episode on leadership. Cause I just am fascinated by this. Cool. And I've yeah, got yeah. a bunch of like the academic aspects of it and you know, uh, as a teaser, I'm going to, I'm going to ask a quick question. Do you think, uh, leaders are born do you, or, or do you think they're made? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Right. Uh, I think there's definitely people that are fundamentally more charismatic than others, but the direction that charisma goes in is highly dependent on experience and development. Oh, you're talking about like Machiavellianism and versus, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got it. Like there's definitely people that just probably can't be leaders cause they're not, um, too anxious or too whatever and aren't able to get themselves out of it. But just having like a charismatic person doesn't necessarily make them a leader. You need quite a bit of development to get there. All right. That's my opinion. I like it. No, that's, that's a great lead in to, to what I want to get into. Cool. All right, man. All right, dude. Well, I love you. Huh? Scuttlebutt. What? That's, a, that's a scuttlebutt. <laughs> All right. All right. So next week, more leadership and more money. Two mid thirties dudes sitting in their bed. Two white dudes who have an opinion <laughs> on things. Definitely. The world needs more of this. This is the first podcast that's ever done this. So <laughs> yeah. Two guys in their underwear. Yep. Whoa. I'm wearing pants actually. I'm still dressed up for this. I'm a PJs. Yeah. Lucky you. Yeah. All right, man. All right, dude. Bye, everybody. Bye.